going to do the book of Romans today. <laughs> the whole book. <laughs> uh, I want to do a summary. We're finishing the book. We finished through chapter 16. And so I thought I'd just do a sum- summary of where we've been. Um, I think our reading of the book of Romans determines our understanding of Christianity. And we can divide then various Christianities uh, as to how they read the book of Romans, how they've understood this book. And what is at stake then in these alternative readings is really how we understand sin, how we understand the human predicament, and how it is that we think Christ saves us. I think there's two very different Christianities. Uh, in one, there, the fundamental nature of the gospel is that in some way the law <clears throat> is itself the problem. And I think what we've seen is in, in Romans is that the nature of salvation in Christ is not directed to the law, but is directed to sin and death. And the way that we've defined sin in Romans, and I think in Scripture, is that sin is a deception. It's a lie, or oriented to death. And so it's a kind of sad irony that the most hotly contested portion of the Bible, this theological center in many ways, uh, has uh, that there is a kind of uh, perverse Christianity that has arisen that's misread the understanding that is given priority uh, to the law as the problem. And so in this understanding, the readings, especially Romans 6 to 8, is made to fit this understanding in a, a kind of misunderstood Christianity. So if you wanted to divide up, you know, the various Protestant sects or even the difference between, uh, you know, what Paul's saying and uh, in the history of Christianity, I think you could really do it through uh, Romans and through misreadings of Romans. So I hope in our our understanding that we've come to uh, recognize, okay, what's the key problem? What's the role of the church? New life in Christ is not simply a promise for the future, but it is the ground then of an alternative subject that we realize in the church, no longer oriented to sin and death, through a lie. And the transition then from a Jewish understanding or a Jewish church to the church universal is being worked out. What was the purpose of the law? The letter of Romans, we've said, makes sense if we understand that what's taking place in Rome is that uh, Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians are in a conflict over the importance of the law and over Jewish practices. That is, shall we continue circumcision? Shall we continue the food laws? And Paul is seeking to resolve the conflict. This isn't just a side issue. Because for Paul, he's showing that the law and the legal ethnic differences of Jews and Gentiles are secondary to a more significant problem, the law of sin and death. And it's more, uh, there is a more significant answer, a universal answer, righteousness revealed through faith in Christ. And so, 
If we miss this, this big central point of Paul, of Romans, I'm afraid we've missed really the significance of Christianity. The Mosaic Law only accentuated the need for the power of the Spirit to be brought into our lives. The law itself was not the problem. The theological argument and the social development converge in the theme of universality. That is, this new community is going to be universal. It no longer bears the marks, you know, the exclusive marks of Jewish rituals, Jewish food laws, Jewish practices. But it will embody the reality of a new inclusive form of humanity in Christ. And that's the, you know, as we came to the end of the book, that's what Paul is, he's hammering this home again and again, that you need uh, to relinquish your own rights for the rights of the brothers and sisters in Christ. So the thrust of the argument is the continuity between the old and the new, between, uh, you know, of salvation history. Or rather, how has God been and is now making people right? This is, you know, the term righteousness. We get confused on this. And it's just the idea God's making people right. Things ain't right. And he's making them right. And Paul seeks to show the relationship between law and gospel, between Jewish and Gentile believers, and between Israel and the church, so as to make the case that the gospel is universal. This is his opening statement. Uh, The righteousness of God has been revealed, and he's echoing several Old Testament passages, which are seeking, they're calling, you know, for God to make things right in the face of defeat of shame and death and Paul's point is I'm not ashamed the universal reign of death you know of death and shame inaugurated with Adam and Eve is pronounced closed with the opening of the gospel of Romans Uh, the reign of life marked by shame is displaced by faith in the gospel's power to make things right so And so the themes of shame and righteousness, they're paired in the Old Testament. That is, the problem is often characterized by shame. And this term is is important because I'm using, and Paul is using, not the word guilt, not guilt in the face of the law, but shame is this holistic experience uh, that describes a holistic problem with people. The language of shame appears together, you know, in the lament psalms with the language that Paul is using of righteousness. What's the problem? Shame. Shame and death. What's the resolution? Righteousness. Righteousness being made right. And so while Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.25 says they were naked and not ashamed prior to the fall, and then they are naked and ashamed, Paul says, I'm not ashamed in the face of death. And so the true intent of Judaism and the law was to be found in Christ, living living true to the law. The antagonism between Jews and Gentiles is set in the framework of a more fundamental problem, the reign of death in both Jews and Gentiles. That is, the alienation between Jew and Gentile is just the sign or the figure of a larger alienation overcome in Christ. 
Those who are baptized into Christ, Paul says in chapter 6, die to sin and conquer death and become true children of God who are able to meet the obligations of covenant relationship. Something that the Jews were not enabled to do and something that, in fact, uh, was just pointed out again and again. So chapters 6 to 8 cleanse the argument that all are alike under the law of sin and death. Both Jews and Gentiles are alike. There is no difference, Paul says. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And all are made righteous in relation to Christ. So the letter's theme of righteousness, we need to understand that from its Hebrew background and not a Greek background. And and the difference is that in the Hebrew, it's a relational concept rather than in a Greek, you know, uh, idea of a standard of measure. Uh, From this background, it is understood that God's faithfulness to his covenant with Israel or his saving action for Israel is his righteousness. God's faithfulness to the covenant is fulfilled and human faithfulness to the covenant is fulfilled then in Christ. And so his reckoning and making righteous are part of his initiative. First of all, in his call to Israel and then his call in Christ to sustain a covenant relationship marked by the law. Hear the language here? That is, law is not the primary thing. Covenant relationship is the primary thing. And the law was just the mediator between the covenant that was made with Abraham and the covenant that was made with Christ. So Paul is contrasting the works of the law with faith. And in this light, It has to do with the difference between the two covenants. Between covenant faithfulness marked in the first instance by remaining true to the distinctive markers of Judaism. And then the second covenant which is justification by faith. And this is removed, uh, you know, the the covenant to Israel uh, uh, is going to remove that difference, that uh, restriction is removed in the covenant of faith. God is faithful to his covenant with Israel. That's chapter 4. But through Israel comes the universal covenant with all who believe. And Paul is going to say this in 1 and 3 and 4 and 10. He keeps, you know, what is thematic in Romans? The universality of the gospel. It's for all who believe. And so Paul's uh, gospel deals decisively Uh, with the human condition of sin and death. Otherwise, there would be little reason to announce to Gentiles that the God worshipped by Jews, what the God worshipped by Jews has achieved in Christ. That is, this is significant for all people. And so, 118 to 320 is describing, who has this problem of sin and death? Paul says everybody has it. And he's trying to answer the question of why God, had, God needed to reveal his saving righteousness in Christ and why people can only experience it by faith. And the, the answers are found, first of all, in Paul's contention, 3.9, all are understand, all are helpless captives to the deadly rule of sin. 
There is no exclusiveness on the basis of Gentile or Jewish readers. And this is, you know, the series of quotes in chapter 3, which applies both to the Jews and to their enemies, and Paul weaves them together in which he talks about the organs of speech as taking up a lie, functioning as a grave, entrapping and poisoning, leading to bloodshed and violence. Who has that problem? Oh, everybody, all people. Nothingness or emptiness seem to have been taken up into the organs of speech. uh, And they become a kind of grave or a sarcophagus. And throughout the list, the organs of speech deal in death. Paul says, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. Who? Everybody. This is the human predicament. David, in the psalm that Paul is quoting, compares two kinds of speech. Uh, one kind either you know, orients to God's presence or to his absence. And so the lie of sin deals in death, even among those who have been entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul says in 3.2. So the law has its purpose, which Paul has demonstrated in 3.20. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's it. That's the purpose of the law. This is not a bragging right for the Jews, Paul says, but it's a cause for silent humility. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. That's the function of the law. All have fallen short of God and all are in need of redemption from the law, or rather from the lie of sin. And so what does the the promise of God, the righteousness of God do? It counters this death-dealing lie. And it's received you know, by Abraham. This is the story in chapter 4 is transitional in Romans because Abraham is the prototype of faith. What is unique about Abraham? Well, we talked about Abraham that his entire life is seen as a kind of death acceptance. In that he, you know, left his home, his people, his uh, family, and he depended completely on, on God He is one who accepts his own body as good as dead. He's over 100 years old. Sarah's womb is as good as dead. And yet he trusts God in the face of death. What is Abraham's faith? Paul says it's resurrection faith. And so the faith of Abraham is the faith that saves. Uh, So the specific problem of the reign of death through sin, through this lie, is undone in the faith which come, overcomes the fear and threat of death. Uh, by, you know, Abraham is a hundred years old, his womb, Sarah's womb is as good as it. By trusting God for life, though he were as good as dead, uh, he attains resurrection life. So the bondage of sin as portrayed in the passages Paul has taken up, it is, there is an organic link between what we might call death resistance or death denial or taking, you know, Isaiah describes it, taking refuge in a lie in the covenant with death. That is overcome in resurrection faith. 
Faith is death acceptance, and it involves this exposure of the law. The argument seems to purposely reference the events prior to the giving. You know, in uh, Romans 4, there's no reference to Isaac, right? If you were going to talk about Abraham's death acceptance, you'd think he'd talk about Abraham taking Isaac up Mount Moriah. But that's not there. Why isn't that there? Because Paul's entire argument is to say that the significant faith of Abraham is worked out prior to the giving of the law, prior to the circumcision, you know, the giving of circumcision, the other elements of the law. Uh, that uh, we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness, not works of the law. It was credited not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Paul's argument as to the secondary nature of the law is that it not it is not itself the promise, but is it's, it's a seal of the sign. It's a seal uh, of the promise. And the mistake then is there in chapter seven. Who makes this mistake? To presume the mistake is to presume life and righteousness are found in the law. I believe that in a sense everybody makes this mistake. That is that we can obtain life through the law. We just I was talking in Sunday school about in Hawaii. You know how do you keep your life? Well, one way you keep it is you keep the law, or the, otherwise the king will kill you. That's sort of the universal predicament, that people imagine that life is something that's available to us in and through law-keeping, in and through our own righteousness. That's certainly the Jewish mistake, but the Jewish mistake is illustrative of the universal problem, the universal mistake. I believe that's what Paul is refuting. That's the lie Paul is refuting in chapter 7. We already see that back in chapter 5, when he, he, his argument against Jewish distinctiveness and for the universal nature of the gospel. You know, nevertheless, de- death reigned from Adam until Moses. Adam, however, is a type of him who was to come. For Paul, there's not four types of people, you know, Jews, Gentiles, uh, Christians, you know, Adam. For Paul, there's two kinds of people, right? First Adam... Second Adam. Either you're found in the first Adam. Who's found in first Adam? Oh, everybody. That's Jews, that's Gentiles. That's the universal problem. And so being Jewish or Gentile here makes no difference. Um, So Adam and Christ are the two most influential individuals in human history. And believers can take confidence because they belong to the one who has overturned all that Adam introduced into the world. Our problem is an ad, you know, being in Adam, being found in Adam by our own choice, I believe. But where in Adam inaugurates death, Christ ushers in life. Where Adam begins a race of sinners, Christ makes a righteous humanity. And Paul takes note of the law of Moses in verse 14, but only as a marker of the reign of death, which extends in both directions so that Jews and Gentiles are no different in that death rules all. Uh, So Adam is a type of every man. 
which Paul is describing, and I believe that's what he's doing in Romans 7. Romans 7, you know, is uh, about the law, but what law? Well, he's already said that in some way this law reigns over all people, that all people are subject to this law. So you could take chapter 68, 6 to 8, they deliver the details of how the reign of death is overcome in the life of the individual. Through baptism, they are identified with Christ's death and resurrection, and their very being or self is transformed. So where chapter 5 expresses this redemption in two universal types, chapter 6 to 8 explain what this universality looks like in terms of individual identity and the dynamics of human personality, interiority. Chapter 68 is not a change of subject from the universal reign of sin and death overcome in Christ, but rather it's a picture of how it looks in the particular instance, the particular predicament and its resolution. Paul explains how God, you know, this is Romans, how is God making things right? How is he making things right in regard to Jews, Gentiles? How is he making things right in regard to the individual? And then when we get to chapter 9 to 11, he goes back again to describing how he's making things right uh, in a corporate picture. And, you know, this is the hard passage that, uh, you know, he talks about the vessels of wrath. And he's not talking about some abstract doctrine of predestination, you know, in which he's going to explain, uh, you know, how, why some people. Are. No, he's talking about what God is doing, was doing through Israel. Uh, it's a way of saying very specifically that the fact of Israel's election beginning with Abraham, that's where he begins in chapter 9, had always been there to deal with the sin of the world. That Israel's election had always involved Israel being narrowed down. You know, not just to Isaac and then Jacob and then to a remnant and then a seed. And this remnant would be narrowed down itself, rather, to the Messiah. What happens to the Messiah? He himself would be cast away. Right? He himself is treated as a pot bound for destruction. There's the predestination. All of predestination is to be found in Christ. Right? He is cast away so that the world might be redeemed. I was playing racquetball uh, last week with my good Calvinist friend. and he, He brought up double predestination. You know, are some people damned for hell and some people predestined for heaven? Where do they get that passage? They get it right here in Romans. It's a misreading. You know, it's not that some people are damned for hell and some people... No, he's talking about Christ himself is predestined. Paul, you know, the vessels of wrath, Paul uses the metaphor of a potter and a clay and clay to describe his dealings specifically with Israel, not all of humanity. And Israel cannot tell God, you are unfair in molding us in a certain way. God has chosen Israel and he is the master potter and can mold pottery in any way he chooses. This act of choosing 
is what we mean by election. Israel is chosen to accomplish a particular purpose. It's not then that election simply involves a selection of some and a leaving of others, uh, a loving and of some and a hating of others. It is that the elect themselves are elect in order to be the place where and the means by which God's redemptive purposes are worked out. This is always the purpose of election. So this is a reinterpretation of Israel's story. That's that's the significance of Romans 9 to 11. This is a key passage for understanding the Old Testament. Paul says, what if God wanted to demonstrate his judgment and his power by showing patience towards the vessels of wrath and revealing the richness of his mercy toward his vessels of mercy, which would include Gentiles? Well, the answer to this is exactly what happened in the Messiah. And Paul quotes from Hosea to answer the question. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And who, who uh, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. So Israel, upon a, whom a partial hardening has come, Romans eleven twenty five, refers to the Jews. Whereas all Israel that will be saved in chapter 26 is the church. That's, Paul, that, that's what Paul always means, right? Due to, the, due to sin, the Jews attempted to establish their own righteousness. <coughs> Chapter 10, verse 3. And through the law, and they failed to combine it with faith. And so freedom from sin is necessarily freedom from man's physical desire for life, for himself, the desire unleashed by the law to find life apart from God. You know, Paul is our example here. Think of Paul as a Pharisee. In his zeal, before he was a Christian, the same zeal that killed Jesus, right? This Pharisaical zeal of Paul is the zeal of his brethren that put Christ on the cross. Not just you know, not just Jews, but but Romans too. Um, the thing they do not know is how Christ is the goal or the end of the law, and that's what Paul is explaining. They don't understand Judaism. The Jews don't understand Judaism, and Paul is explaining Judaism to them in the book of Romans. Thus, you know, they seek to establish Jewishness and law as an end in itself. Paul says, no, that's not what Israel means. Therefore, there there can therefore be no covenant future for those Israelites who refuse, Paul says, to abandon their own. That is their own ethnic status, their covenant, the status of covenant membership on the basis of being ethnically Jewish. Christ is the end of that road. Christ is inaugurating true Israel. The final goal of the covenant purpose, which was always intended to deal with sin and its effects. Uh, and this is then, you know, this was the purpose of Israel brought about through Christ. So Paul is not, you know, chapter 9 to 11 gives us a lot of hokey, strange stuff about Israel. And it's a misunderstanding. Who is true Israel? 
Well, he said that. He said this very clearly. True Israel are all the true sons of Abraham who have the faith of Abraham. What is the church? Well, the church is true Israel. We're the ones, you know, uh, that it, it is a universal faith. And so Paul's lament at the opening of chapter 9 is in no way undone with his conclusion at the end of 11. He says that, you know, and I, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brother. Um, who are the Israelites? At the end of chapter 11, he's going to say all of Israel is saved. Wait a minute. Why would he lament at chapter 9 if he says all of Israel is saved at, the, at chapter 11? If he's talking about his kinsmen, the Jews. Well, the point is he's not changed the subject. He's saying that true Israel, all Israel is saved. But he also explains that all who are called Israel are not Israel. Not all Jews are true Israel. He says, I do not want you, to, uh, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation uh, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, he said, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. So who or what is Israel? Paul says, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So, uh, true Israel is not this community of people, you know, located next to Palestine in modern day. No, that has nothing to do with, what, with, with Paul's conversation here. Key issues in the in the conclusion of the book that we've talked about. Chapter 12, it talks about the transformation of the mind. So Paul goes talking, he talks about, you know, individual, corporate, and then he begins talking about the individual again as they're transformed in this corporate relationship. So how is this mind transformation accomplished? He says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What, above all, Paul means by transformation, it is not an autonomous, imminent, magical, mystical event. It is a process by which the transcendent 
eschatological reality of salvation that he's just talked about in 9 to 11 is worked out the reality of salvation works determinatively in the earthly lives of Christians through these new temple communities of churches that Paul is establishing so you know he's already talked about in Romans 7 and 8 the body over mind in Romans 7 in contrast to mind over body in Romans 8. And so what gets sacrificed in chapter 12, I think is the dynamic that he's described in chapter 7, and what gets put in its place is that which is put, you know, described in chapter 8. Uh, in chapter 13, Paul builds upon Jesus' notion of love of enemies. He's coming to his conclusion and he's talking about a nonviolent revolution through a revolutionary subordination. So here we have the discussion, you know, okay, we've got these new communities of people, these new kinds of human subjects, but how do we deal with the world now? How do we deal with human governments? How do we deal with culture? He says through this uh, mutual subordination. Husbands and wives, masters and slaves... That this, you know, was to revolutionize the institution of marriage, of social relationships, of family structure through the culture of the church. And so too the subordination to the state. Remember the state, what state? The Roman state that crucified Jesus that's going to behead Paul. They were going, uh, they need to recognize God's purpose would be realized through the church. And that the idolatry of the state was to be resisted. The church is made up of those conformed, Paul says, to God's character. He's already said that in chapter 12. Not to content to go on allowing themselves to be continually stamped afresh with the, the spirit of the age, which is passing away. So we need to, we, we talked in uh, chapter 13, we need to set it in the context of chapter 12. 13 is a continuation of this idea of a mutual subordination. Um, the entire section sees Christians being called to nonconformity to the world, an all-encompassing suffering love for fellow believers and their enemies and everyone in between. And so we need to read chapter 13, 1 to 7 as not it's not to see it as being part of the you know, um, uh, something separate from what he's described, but rather it's part of what he's described of how to live in nonconformity to the world of the age. You know, what would be what would be conformity would be to rebel and have a violent revolution. Paul says, "Don't do that." Even though this is the government that be, that killed Christ, uh, the new kingdom community uh, doesn't deal. In, in violence. And so Paul's exhortations in 13 13.1-7 explain how these very members of the church are to subordinate themselves to the state that definitely does not manifest the lifestyle of the church. And then chapter 14, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. He's got these Jews and Gentile Christians coming together, some are saying we should eat 
meat, sacrifice to idols. Some are saying we should follow certain special days. And Paul is trying to give them a, a principle by which they can live together. Um, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. And so Paul's trying to bring about a unified community from among those from you know a pagan Roman religion and uh, a Jewish legalistic religion. And he will consistently argue for unified practices. How do you have a unified community of people? Through these unified practices. Um, he uses Jewish monotheism. You know, monotheism. God is one. Therefore, you need to be one. And this is his vision, you know, kind of the theological climax in Romans 15. Is to, you are to be about the business of bringing new temple koinonia. Or fellowship in Christ in these, you know, uh, centers of worship in the Roman world. For Paul, the reconciliation of Jew and Greek and their ability to live together was the prototype of reconciliation with God. He says there is no distinction. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters. There is no longer Jew or Greek. Circumcision is nothing Neither is uncircumcision. There is neither male nor female, slave nor free, but we are all one in Christ. This is actually Galatians, but I think Galatians is a commentary here on Romans. Differences have to be carefully negotiated. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good. To his edification. There is agape love, right? There it is. Paul's entire effort is aimed at producing this self-sacrificing community. He's on a mission, then. You know, even this is the ending of the book. He's on a mission that is itself to, to bring an offering from Gentiles, uh, a financial offering. To the Jews, to bring these two worlds together. Romans 16 lets us know that real people, including women leaders, those with slave backgrounds, those with and without Jewish connections, were meant to hear and benefit from this letter. Everybody can read Romans and understand it. If you begin with the right, uh, you know, in, in the right place. It gives us the powerful example of Paul describing the woman Junior as an apostle and shows us that Paul regarded her and the other women leaders mentioned as people who were truly laboring and doing good work in building up the house churches of Rome. I'm not ashamed, no longer subject to shame. God is making things right through this new community and culture which is transforming the world. Let's sing our hymn.